there's been an unprecedented amount of disruption to education in America these past few years. From the pandemic-forced Zoom classes to discriminatory laws targeting trans youth, the classroom has been a far from comfortable place for a student. On top of all of this, the regular occurrence of school shootings in this country have made the classroom feel far from safe as well. Teachers like Cindy have to navigate their students through the fear and anxiety caused by the increasing possibility of a shooting happening near their school, all while managing those difficult emotions themselves as well. Cindy has been around teaching nearly all of her life, but never could she have predicted that it would require her to become a makeshift therapist and a bodyguard in the event that the worst were to ever happen. This is the reality many teachers face today, as the burden of fear is now an ever-present part of the job. I'm Tai Chu, and this is Listen for a Change, a podcast amplifying the unique stories from the invisible among us. We find the voices you don't often hear, we empower them to heal around their experience using storytelling, and we turn up the volume to open up all of our hearts and minds. This isn't just storytelling, this is an intervention to restore compassion. Cindy first reached out to us in 2022 to share her story. Here now, we walk through it and go a little bit deeper. Teaching found me, although it wasn't what I initially went to college to study. From being a camp counselor to an after-school program director to a private school teacher and finally a public school teacher, working with children especially teenagers, has been one of my greatest passions and sources of joy. Teaching was woven into the fabric of my life from birth onward. Both my maternal grandparents were college professors, and my paternal great-grandmother was a career elementary school teacher. Teaching is in my DNA, and it is a profession I was taught to revere and have deep respect for. As someone who was raised in rural Tennessee, I grew up thinking that guns were used exclusively for hunting animals. My recollections of guns being mentioned around me centered um, around friends whose parents went deer hunting on the weekends. I could not imagine the direct impact that guns and gun violence would have on me when I first began my first full year of public school teaching um, in 2006. When four students in my first year of teaching, died, three by car accident, one by gun violence, I knew I'd entered into a more direct and traumatic relationship with guns. Until I left that district in 2016, the community experienced numerous student deaths, some caused by gang and gang-affiliated violence, others not, but almost always involving a gun. In 2014, it was the day of a particularly traumatic lockdown due to some violent gang activity in extremely close proximity to the high school where I taught. A very young looking ninth grader asked me during the lockdown, which wasn't a drill, it was an actual real lockdown. If a shooter came into this classroom, would you die for us? I looked at my students who had just been hiding under their desks and I paused 
and I had to think about my answer, like really think about it. And I did. And I said, yes, I would. And I meant it. I literally imagined myself coming between a person with a gun and my students. Yeah, I rethought to myself, I would actually do that. The student who asked the question gasped. I don't think he thought I was going to have that reply. And the classroom got silent. I started crying. A few other students started crying too as just the weight of that idea settled in that teachers or staff members would need to sacrifice their lives or be murdered alongside their students while simply going to work. It was at that moment that I realized that I may be shot and killed while going to work simply by being a teacher at an American school. This wasn't an occasional or a weekly thought that randomly popped into my head. It was more like a daily, sometimes multiple times a day thought, just kind of gnawing and soul-crushing acknowledgement that I was risking my life to obtain a salary and health insurance for me and my family. A few years earlier in December 2012, An 11th grader looked up at me during a quiet work period in my classroom with tears in her eyes. And she said, Ms. Schusterman, did you hear about the elementary school shooting? 20 little kids are dead. It was like the information didn't compute. My brain would not accept that fact as true. I honestly thought the student had misheard something on the news or that she was playing a particularly out of character, horrible prank. I'd barely left my classroom that day and I hadn't checked the news. So I had not heard about the Sandy Hook school shooting. The irony was not lost on me. A student informed a teacher during the middle of class about a school shooting. Now that we are processing traumatic events immediately after, and sometimes even as they are happening, teachers and school staff, by sheer default of being the only adult in the room when students hear news of another school shooting, um, we have become makeshift therapists. We did not sign up for this job, and we aren't trained for this job, yet we do this job because it is what is asked of us at that moment. In January 2019, one day before we came back from winter break, one of my senior English students was killed by a gun. Instead of laughing with my seniors as they recounted their adventures over winter break, talking about what they got for holiday gifts and what they were going to wear to winter formal. I was consoling, sobbing, and shaking teenagers as they processed the news of their peers and their dear friends' sudden, sudden death. Instead of starting our next unit, I reviewed the stages of grief and shared a list of resources and places students could go to for more support. I presided over silent class periods while students wrote, 
read, drew, cried, talked, or simply just sat in somber reflection of the news that we were all still processing. That student death impacted our community more than we'll ever be able to understand or measure. For days and weeks after that student's death, my students and and myself, we just walked around in a zombie-like haze. Students weren't smiling or talking in the halls. No one was in my classroom laughing and trying to catch up on homework or asking me for last minute help. Um, We were mourning and we were moving through the stages of grief together. I don't think this should be a part of any student's senior year. And it certainly was not what I expected would become a part of my teaching career that I had past experience on which to draw from as I navigated my trauma raw students through a peer's death made me feel weak and sick. It shouldn't be a fact. When that death happened, um, student centers, libraries, and cafeterias on campus were turned into makeshift crisis counseling centers, as happens at schools across the country when students are murdered. This should not be a fact. My school site, school sites across the country conduct numerous lockdown and barricade drills pre and post COVID that actually require students to build a barricade out of desks and chairs against the doorway and entry points to a classroom should not be a fact. Students ask me to be excused from participating in drills because it gives them too much anxiety It exacerbates existing PTSD and trauma, and sometimes students tell me that they'll be physically ill if they participate in a drill. That should not be a fact. Teachers and staff who have their own anxiety to manage, myself included, are expected to lead these drills while maintaining a calm environment in addition to guiding students through the logistical steps of a drill should not be a fact. I've spent years building a very strong toolkit of coping skills and practices to manage my chronic anxiety. I've had anxiety and PTSD since I was a small child, and a big part of my life has been spent cultivating a lifestyle where my anxiety is manageable, Um, more than manageable. Sometimes all I can hope for is that um, it's not coming up so close to the surface that it impedes um, my daily life. In October 2021, the first school year back after the Zoom year of 2020 to 21, teachers were asked to conduct a lockdown and barricade drill due in large part to an uptick in school shootings. Because it was a high stress, high trauma, and completely overwhelming school year, My anxiety was very high, almost daily at work. Everything became harder and more intense as students and staff relearned 
how to communicate with people, how to be a part of a group, how to interact with people face to face again, how to enter and exit a conversation. It was like we hadn't done that in a year because we hadn't. We hadn't had human interaction and we needed to practice that. During these lockdown barricade and intruder on campus drills, my mind goes to many different worst possibilities. This is common for people with anxiety. For me, this looks like me imagining that I interact with an armed shooter first before my students so that either I die first and spare their lives or I can deter them somehow from murdering my students. This looks like me picturing myself dead on my classroom floor, surrounded by my dead students. This looks like me thinking about what my daughter's life would be like without me. This also looks like me wondering if I'll get a chance to text my husband and my brother before I die. While I know it's just a drill, quote unquote, and there is no real actual threat at that given moment, anxiety doesn't work that way. For me, the threat has become too real to even be considered a threat. It's no longer the possibility of something happening. Now, I think, when will this happen to me personally? Because I know it's only a matter of time before it does. So I knew that in order to conduct this drill, I would need support. Admitting that to myself was kind of a big deal. It was difficult, but I know as one of my coping skills is to ask for help or support when I need it. So a week before the scheduled drill, I mustered up the energy and courage to email one of my school administrators on campus about the situation and ask if I could either be excused from conducting the drill and have another staff member run it, or if I could have more support in the room while I conducted the drill. They replied with kindness, but said that neither option would be possible and asked me to conduct the drill anyway. I imagine this was due to a shortage of people on staff and just a shortage of resources in general. So I made a game plan of how I do it. I discussed that plan with my classroom community. That includes, included my students, my co-teacher and several paraprofessional aides. I accounted for my possible anxiety and panic, as well as that of my students by having different plans and options available should one thing or another happen. I shared openly with them about the anxiety I experienced, specifically during drills. We'd already grown close as a class and students were open to hearing me and each other speak directly from their hearts. We talked about people's different reactions to drills and why some may laugh them off and some may be visibly scared or sad. Overall, my beautiful classroom community of 17 and 18 year olds agreed to maintain a safe and comfortable environment for everyone during the drill. I pre-appointed students to move desks and chairs to the doors and build the barricade against the doorway. Once the drill began, students not tasked with pulling down the shades, closing the curtains, or moving furniture silently walked to the farthest corner of the room and crouched down so they could practice hiding from a gunman. After the barricade was built, I did as instructed, and I took a picture of the barricade with my cell phone and sent it to my administrator. We then quietly talked as we hid for the remainder of the drill, about 10 or so minutes. 
The drill was successful and my anxiety did not present itself as largely and loudly as I thought it would. My students were phenomenal and respected my humanity, their own humanity, and each other's humanity on that day. I don't have a problem conducting drills when they are earthquake or fire related. It's a bit scary, but conducting an earthquake or a fire drill certainly doesn't make my chest tight, my stomach cramp up, or send me into fight or flight mode due to a primitive innate sense of a perceived risk to life that a lockdown barricade drill or intruder on campus drill does. It's mind boggling to me to think that in a state like California where I live, fires and earthquakes are happening with more and more regularity. But in my lived experience, it is more likely for an intruder with a gun to come on my campus than it is for a natural disaster to occur. Last school year, I wasn't able to be at my high school site where I taught for the last seven years for the majority of second semester due to a medical leave of absence. I missed my students terribly, but I did not miss worrying about being gunned down with an AR-17 rifle in one of the safest places I've ever constructed, my classroom. The lesson I've learned over and over is this. Students cannot learn if they do not feel safe and comfortable. Likewise, I cannot do my vital work unless I feel safe and comfortable. Classrooms and school buildings Places of discovery, relationship building, and identity formation should be places where students feel safe, safe enough to grow, thrive, and flourish into the beautiful adults they're meant to be. They simply can't do that when they're worried that today is the day they may die at school. I dropped my precious second grader off at her public elementary school a few days ago. As I watched her disappear into the building, huge backpack and all, I thought to myself, I hope she doesn't get killed today. Immediately, the morbidness and the absurdity of that thought struck me. Next, the idea that it isn't all that absurd to have this singular wish for our children overtook my first thought. And then the sick, nauseous feeling that perhaps this is just some twisted reality that we all have to live with settled in. But I don't want to stop at that disgusting feeling. That feeling is actually the fuel I use to keep demanding that our students and their caregivers don't need to imagine going to school as a cause of death. Cindy, it is such an honor to have you come onto our platform, share this really incredibly personal and powerful perspective of an issue that I don't think there's anybody in the U.S. who isn't affected by this in some way, shape, or form, but you actually lived through this. So thank you very much, first off, for taking the time to share this perspective with us today. Um, I wanted to ask you first... Um, I, I, you talk a lot about the effects of gun violence and the fear and concern and the anxiety that weighs on you and your students. Mm-hmm. Have you seen 
this manifest in your students in any way in terms of their anxiety, their mental health, um, or anything like that? Definitely. Yes. Um, in the simplest answer, um, students don't want to come to school as much um, because they are afraid. Um, and not coming to school can lead to all kinds of you know, problems further down the road. Um, I can think of like short-term, middle-term, long-term issues that could come from a fear of not wanting to go to school. Um, what I really noticed was, so I had to take, I'm taking this, I took, I had to take a school year off. Um, I'm taking the school year off this year, but in January of 2021, I went on a medical leave. Um, sorry, in January 2022, my bad. So January 2022, this year, I started a medical leave and I actually didn't come back to school. The medical leave was extended until June. Now I'm currently taking another uh, a leave of absence for this school year. But what I noticed and what I heard from my colleagues was... Um, after the Uvalde school shooting, the day the day and the immediate days after, attendance was much lower. Um, I also know as a parent, I questioned whether I should send my daughter to school the day and the days after the Uvalde shooting, um, even though you know it was in a different state. Um, so living with those fears. And living with that anxiety on a day-to-day -day basis is not sustainable for a human. Um, you know, as you're as you're dropping your child off to work, thinking about what you have to do for the day, thinking about how you need to take care of yourself, your family, your job, that's hard enough without also hoping and praying that your child or a, a young one that you love um, is going to die um, at school. It's just stress that we don't we don't need. You talk a lot about ways in which um, you try to cope with all of the reality of what's going on with gun violence, the fear and all of that. What are things that you specifically do or have done that you have found helpful in terms of self-care um, mm. for yourself, right? Not just for your students, but like you, Cindy, as the teacher, as the human being who has to live this reality day in, day out. How do you take care of yourself and make sure that you are putting yourself in your needs first so that you can care for your students. Mm -hmm. um, the first thing I do is I step away. Um, I have to take time to restore, refuel, and re-energize myself. And sometimes that looks like stepping away. It might look like taking one day off. It might look like taking a week off. But for me, the first thing that happens is I, I step away from, from work. And the direct impact of that is I'm not there for my students. And um, another impact of that is I know as a teacher, if I take a day off because I'm at such a point where my basic needs aren't getting met, um, Ty, that's the thing is like, I really... I think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs a lot with this and the foundational level is five basic needs, food, water, shelter, clothing, sleep. 
I, if I'm not getting my basic needs met, if anyone's not getting their basic needs met, that's kind of, that might be a time to say, okay, I need to step away because I haven't been sleeping. So I need to sleep or I haven't been eating well. I've been eating in my car the past couple meals. I, I need to address that. So to me, first thing it looks like, are your basic needs getting met? And um, can and can you step can you step away? Can you take time away? I remember thinking to myself, and I have conversations with colleagues all the time, where we say we can't step away. We just can't. Uh, no one else knows. Like people, uh, even creating a sub plan sometimes is more work than just going to work and and sort of just going through it. So, um, but that as far as what to do. Um, step away and 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 by stepping away you're returning to yourself because i really think checking in with yourself and really figuring out what is it that you need at this moment maybe you just need some time to be quiet and sit at your house in silence and just be maybe you need to sleep for 5 hours because you haven't been sleeping maybe you need to go to the grocery and get some healthy food for yourself but the thing is, is that if that's not being met, we can't thrive. I want you to take me back to, let's let's rewind to childhood, Cindy, for a, a moment. Um, mm-hmm. You said you were born and raised in Tennessee. Is that right? That is correct. What was it like there in terms of gun culture? Because I'm someone who was born and raised in the Bay Area, and large, by and large, I did not encounter much gun culture, let alone see a gun. Do you remember what that was like, both at like a cultural level, but also how it impacted you when you first realized guns were a thing and this is what they're used for? You you mentioned a little bit about it in your story, but help us understand a little bit more what it was like for you growing up and when you first encountered guns and really were aware of yeah. the culture of them. Um, it's a very good question. So Basically, um, growing up in the South and growing up in a really rural area, hunting was really popular. Um, so a lot of times my, um, my friends, parents, and then ultimately my friends, you know, when they reached a high school age or something, um, would start hunting and, and hunting in this way, uh, they would go deer hunting and sometimes duck hunting. Um, the, the purpose was, um, it was it was with the intent of um, if you were to kill a deer, then um, the meat was always used. Like my friends and I, I remember our parents um, sometimes like uh, a parent would give uh, give someone like some deer, some frozen deer mate meat that they had caught or something. And, you know, that wasn't strange to hear about um, when I was in high school and we could all start driving. Um, some of my friends hunted so much that they would, um, you know, they would come to school in their camo and then like go hunting after school. Um, but it was always, uh, it always was very, it was done very safely. They frequently talked about the precautions they would take. It was done carefully. Um, and it was, it was something that I wasn't afraid of. Like it wasn't a a scary thing at all. Um, if anything, you know, perhaps scary for the animals, but, but not talking about it. Like it was just like, Oh, they're going hunting, like not a big deal. Um, 
And as for me personally, I remember this clearly. I'm glad you asked. Um, when I was little, probably four or five years old, um, I remember I was in my parents' upstairs bedroom and um, and my dad, um, I knew that... <laughs> I knew that my dad had a gun, but I had never seen it. And so one time I asked him to show it to me. And I remember in order to do that, he stepped on a stool and went into the top of the closet and pulled a lock, what I thought was just like a locked briefcase down. As I watched him opened it, um, I remember that he had to there was a combination lock or some sort of lock that he had to open. And then he showed me, um, but he said, and I remember this so clearly, he said, Cindy, the only time that you will ever see me use this gun is if I'm hunting or if I need to defend our family from an intruder. And he told me that I was never to try to climb up and get it that I was never to touch it, that I was never to interact with it. And it was incredibly serious. And um, so I believed that and I never went into that closet. I, I never, I never did. Ultimately, when I was probably later elementary or middle school, my dad actually gave the gun away because he, he didn't want it in the house, um, which I was fine with. But so from that perspective, Yes, you know, I knew of guns. I had even seen a gun, but they were always sort of shrouded in like like safety and like only used for in my experience for hunting. It's so interesting to hear your perspective because you know, for me, I both regionally this is not, you know, the Bay Area is not really a place of gun culture, um and hunting is definitely not a thing here. Um but I grew up never having seen a gun at all period like not even someone holding a gun other than like maybe a police officer you know with a gun in their holster but it's so fascinating to hear your perspective of how it was kind of normalized and like not a, th a thing to be careful of but mm -hmm. not a thing to fear per se yeah and i exactly exactly and i know that um you know my like I never heard, I mean, none of my friends, like I never heard in my community or smaller communities of like someone getting into or like taking a gun from their parents because all the people I knew kept their guns behind very, very locked storage places. And they were only taken out when they were going hunting, like, you know, driving deep into the woods or whatever. So it so that was pretty normal, but I'm like you, I, other than like seeing that, you know, the gun that my dad showed me when I was tiny, I don't, I don't know if I've ever like seen a gun, certainly not like up close. And I'm, I'm terrified of guns personally. I I've always said, I hate guns. Like I, I don't want to see one. I don't want to hold one. I don't want to touch one. Um, it's interesting because, um, I think it's kind of trendy some in the South and maybe in other parts, like going to like a shooting range to just like practice drill shooting or something. I had friends, um, you know, even in college who, uh, female and male friends who would do that. And 
it would be kind of a social event, but like I was like, I'm not going. Like I can't. I just have no interest in doing that. I don't want to practice shooting a gun. Like just no. What take me back to high school now. What was high school like for you as as a high schooler? And do you remember what were like some of the dangers? What were the things that you were worried about? Um, you know, not that you have to date yourself or anything like that, but like, do you remember being aware of, you know, potentially someone bringing a gun to school? Like, was that ever a thing? Or did you grow up in a time, place, culture, region where that was totally not a thing you ever thought? Yeah. About? I mean, that did not enter my head, like, honestly. And, and I'm glad you asked this question because, um, So first of all, I was not, the fear of dying at school by a gun, like that just never entered my head. Like I never thought about that. I felt, I felt safe at my school. What I was afraid of was homophobia, racism, sexism, and the ableism that permeated the culture I grew up in. That's what I was more afraid of. I did not have a fear of being shot at school because that didn't exist in my brain to like even think of. What do you wish people who are not teachers and maybe, you know, other than being parents, but like, don't, don't know what it's like to be in a school setting day in, day out. What do you wish they would know about your job and specifically around gun violence. I mean, you, you told the story about that, but like, is there kind of a, a takeaway message that you wish they wouldn't understand? Yeah. Thank you for asking that. The first thing I would say is that, um, that I wish people knew how teachers just throw a thousand percent of themselves into the job and that the vast, vast, vast majority of us love our students as much as we love our own family members and we care about them and we worry about them. Um, We think about them, you know, uh, perhaps an issue or a conversation we had um, maybe like, you know, at night when we're trying to fall asleep or we, we truly do love our jobs and want to love our jobs, but it is so incredibly difficult to do the job on a daily basis. Um, I just, again, personal, personal experience. I was a teacher for 17 years and, um, and I experienced massive, massive burnout. Um, and that's part of the reason I'm not teaching right now is because I too needed a break and I needed to step away. Um, so I wish people knew how much of ourselves we put into it, how much we do truly love it, but also how hard it is and how draining it can be. And just how, I guess, emotionally taxing being a teacher can be. Because in addition to conveying the content, you know, not once did I mention I'm an English teacher and I teach literature and writing. That's, that's great. But in order to teach that, or in order to teach math or science or language or anything, we have so much up against us. And in order to just deliver the content, it's, it's a big deal because there's so much else to get past. Um, You know, a lot of times I, 
I would think to myself, I just want to talk to kids about books. I just want to teach them about books. I just want to help them become better writers and just, you know, help them become better people in general. And so much of the time, because of the demands put on us, because of the multiple hats we're wearing, we don't get to do that because we're so exhausted from doing everything else. And I definitely want to just appreciate, thank you and all the amazing teachers out there. Just hearing you within your story, you were talking about how, you know, you you prepped your students for the drill and how you debriefed with them and you made sure to check in with them. I mean, it really sounds like you are there for your kids 110%. And you're right. It is such an incredibly hard job. Um, speaking of the next generation, I want to end on a positive note. Mm-hmm. And you teach 17 and 18 year olds, and they're right at that cusp of entering the real world, quote unquote, right? Yes. And you know this generation, and they're very much different because they've grown up with this knowledge. What hope do you have for this next generation in terms of seeing reform, in terms of seeing change, in terms of seeing a better future for their kids? Definitely. Um, My first hope for them is that they take care of themselves. My first hope for them is that they prioritize themselves enough so that they are healthy and thriving. And again, I talk about basic needs, that they're addressing their basic needs, that they're listening to their bodies and listening to their minds. And if their bodies are telling them, slow down, you really need to maybe take off from work today but their minds are telling them, no, push through, you can do it, that they listen to their body and that they take time to rest and recharge. Because my hope for them is that they will carry on this work. And because they've lived it, I'm thinking about the amazing students at at Marjorie uh, Stoneman Douglas School. Um, The it the passion that they have is there because they have seen it happen with their own eyes. So I hope for them that they continue on doing this work and that they continue on doing work that matters to them. So um, whether it's fighting for causes that are important to them. and but, But I tell my students, activists cannot do their work unless they are healthy. Um, A sick activist can't do very much, right? So activists, if they're doing activist work, need to be healthy and need to be ready to do the work. So it starts with taking care of yourself. But then I would encourage people, um, students and young people to, to pick a few things that are like near and dear to their heart, something that they really want to see change in and participate in an active protest in active ways um, in addition to more passive ways. So active ways, going to rallies, going to protests, showing up in person. Um, It's always great to sign a petition and it's amazing to show an online presence, but showing up physically if you're able is uh, something that I believe sends more weight. And speaking of getting more information on being involved, Um, Do you have any resources out there for any folks who want to learn a little bit more on this or be involved? Yes, definitely. So there is um, an organization called Students Demand Action. 
Um, they came from the uh, organization Moms Demand Action. So um, both of those organizations are phenomenal for getting out the me- getting out this message and basically um, just fighting for more safer laws to allow parents, students, teachers, people to just go about their daily life and not worry if they're going to get shot at school. Well, once again, thank you, Cindy, for coming on to the platform and sharing your story. Um, And please be safe and please continue to do the good work that you do in keeping our future generations safe as well. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Ty. I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you liked our show, please be sure to check out listenchange.org to learn about our storytelling workshops. And please rate and subscribe Listen for a Change wherever you get your podcasts. Our production team for this episode was Tunde Damarin and Momo Kaneda. I'm Tai Chu, and remember, a story untold is simply a thought.